we're going to continue our look at this letter that Paul wrote to his colleague Titus. We're on page uh, 1198, if you've got one of the Red Church Bibles. Um, We've had two sessions already, and we've already given a little bit of an overview of uh, what's going on here. Um, We've talked about the fact that Crete, this little island in the Mediterranean, uh, was a very disorientated culture. We've talked about the fact that the church that was already existing there was rather dysfunctional. And, um, and we've been, we, we gave a lot of overview of where we're going to go as we go through this letter. One of the first things that Paul does with Titus is establish the need for a, a sense of strong leadership. And uh, the reason I say that is because of verse 5 of chapter 1. We read it together. Paul writes to Titus and says, The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So what I want to do uh, this morning is to think about the whole subject of leadership. Um, And uh, this is a big subject, and chapter 1 is kind of, Paul fleshes out what he means by this whole subject of leadership. And um, what what I'd like to do, I I thought we might have done this in one time just today, but I think there's too much to do in one go. Um, So we're going to split it into two. What I'd like to do is to think with you today about what leaders should be like. So in other words, I want us to think about the character of a leader and then next time it won't be next Sunday next Sunday we have a visiting preacher I should have mentioned that Um, but the week after next we're going to be thinking about what leaders do so we're going to split it into two we're going to think about what leaders are like and then we're going to think about what leaders primarily should do Okay? so that seems like a pretty simple uh, split so we're thinking about leadership and we're thinking about character Let me, first of all, build up a pattern for you as we think about what leadership looks like in the Bible. Okay, so I want to um, think about the New Testament and uh, the different Greek words that are used in the New Testament for leaders. And uh, hopefully we can build up a picture here. So, first of all, you might recognise some of these words, but one of the first words that occurs in the New Testament for leader is the word presbyteros. You you might have heard of Presbyterian churches or the presbytery. Some churches denominationally kind of make a big play on this Greek word presbyteros. Normally, in the New Testament, the word presbyteros is translated as elder. And the idea, this, this word probably has Jewish connotations behind it because it really suggests someone who is a leader because they are mature, an elder, someone who is senior in, in age perhaps. And there are many cultures that have that idea, don't they, that the, the tribal leaders or the, the people who are leaders or have responsibility are generally people who are well advanced in years. Um, And it suggests seniority. However, it's not the case, is it, that being advanced in years automatically means that you're wise. Um, Sometimes uh, that isn't true. There there are clearly older people who don't display maturity. And And conversely, there are sometimes younger people who often display great maturity that is beyond their years. Well, in the New Testament, I don't think this idea of being an elder is primarily restricted to age. Paul told Timothy, one of his other colleagues, who was a younger man, Paul told Timothy, for example, to not allow people to despise him for his youth. In uh, the first letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, chapter 4, verse 12, Paul says to him, Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. But set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, 
and impurity. So in other words, what Paul was driving at with Timothy was that he wanted him, even as a young man, to be spiritually mature and to set an example and not to allow people to look down on him because he was young, but to be spiritually mature. An elder is someone who has the respect of people from a spiritual perspective, not because he's necessarily old, but because there is a stability and a maturity about him that marks him out spiritually. But leadership isn't just about maturity. There are other words in the New Testament. Let me give you another one that you might reckon... Oh, there we go. Here it comes. The word episcopos. You recognise that word as a kind of denominational word? Sometimes we talk about Episcopalian churches. The word episcopos is often translated in our, I suppose, more modern version of the Bible as an overseer. Uh, this is the word that is often translated in the older version of the Bible as bishop. And this really is a practical word that involves supervision and organisation. This is a word that conveys the idea of management, of directing and steering. It speaks of vision and purpose and generally managing resources and people so that as a group, corporately, we're going somewhere. In 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 17, Paul speaks of elders who direct the affairs of the church. They are overseeing things. And so this uh, is the idea of being able to govern well with a sense of purpose. So there's two words. There's a third one. And uh, this is the word, I don't know how you say that, is it poiman? Poiman is a word that's often translated in the New Testament as pastor. Now this word is taken from the farming world. And it literally really means shepherd. That's the word that we get the word pastor from. And so this, this idea in leadership involves care for people. This is a word that implies love for people. Leaders who have the heart of a shepherd will so govern in a way that reflects their compassion for people. So leadership is about maturity, spiritually. It is about being able to manage things and direct things practically. And it's also about having a heart and a love and a care and a compassion for people. That, that's a good uh, sense, isn't it? There's one more, though. Fourth word. Here's another word. These are all Greek words. Oh, there we go, care. The fourth word that I want to draw your attention to is the word didaskalos. Is that how you say it? I don't know. Sometimes we get the word didactic. Uh, from that which is a, more of an academic word this is really from the world of education and we're thinking here about teaching and the, the whole idea of instruction Whoops. and uh, this is a very important thing in the New Testament too Paul I don't think is just thinking here about people who stand at the front and uh, teach um, but he's thinking that a man who is in leadership will be a man who knows fundamental truths about God and about human nature and about the Bible and the Gospel and that he will also be able to communicate that. There are people who know things but have no idea how to communicate. And there are people who are great communicators but they don't know anything <laughs> about biblical truth. So this idea of teaching from a biblical perspective is someone who knows God and his ways he, he understands the Bible, he knows the Gospel, and he has, in some way, to some level, a gift of being able to communicate that to people in a way that they can understand. Now, the important thing I want you to realise here, I've given you those four words for a very specific reason, and that is that these words are interchangeable. There are whole denominations that have been built up, and ecclesiastical structures have been built up by saying oh this man is an elder this man's an overseer this man's a bishop this man's something else 
the reality is, I think, from the New Testament, that all of these words are just labels to describe leaders. They're not different offices. All of these words sum up, biblically, in the New Testament, the kind of character and attributes that a good leader should have. So biblical leadership is a well-rounded thing. It involves many angles, teaching and instructing, leading and directing, caring and protecting. I don't know many people in life who would have, have an issue with a leader who demonstrates those characteristics. And these characteristics are relevant in all spheres of life, aren't they? Parents, uh, teachers, uh, commercial managers in the secular business world. These traits should be very prevalent in leadership. It's very interesting that Paul says to Titus as well here in verse 5 that he should appoint elders, not just an elder, and that reminds us, I think, that, that it's, it's very, very rare, isn't it, for one man to be good at all of that. Some men will be good at some of it and less good at other parts of it. And I think it, it is a biblical idea that a leadership of a local church should have a plurality within it. There should be a sense that there's a team ethos and that all, all leaders should, to some degree, be able to demonstrate these traits, but not all men will be excellent at all of that. And so there's a benefit in having a leadership team where different men have different strengths, and there's a plurality there. Let me just um, go to the Old Testament. Are you with me? That's a good blueprint from the New Testament. Let's go to the Old Testament. Here, um, in the Old Testament... Uh, and I'm thinking now about the Jewish nation, the people of God in the Old Testament, the Israelite nation. They had, in their culture, three distinct civic leadership functions. And those of you who know the Old Testament will know this. They had kings, they had prophets, and they had priests. That's how it was in the Old Testament. They're all leaders, and they all had different responsibilities and functions. Let me try and flesh that out for you. Kings, I suppose, are leaders in the sense of decisive action. Getting things done. Ruling. Reigning. Organising. Motivating. Kings generally don't take no for an answer. Kings generally are not the ones to see snags in things. But kings are the ones who say, this is where we're going to go. How are we going to get there? Kings are there to lead and rule and to do it decisively and not hesitatingly. Some kings in the Old Testament were excellent, godly, good men. Some kings were awful, deplorable, disgraceful, abused their position. But nevertheless, that function of being a king is there in the Old Testament. What about priests? Well, we might say that priests were responsible for the people in terms of their relationship with God. It wasn't, job, it wasn't the job of a king to make sacrifices. Some kings tried to and were severely reprimanded and punished for that. The priest's job was to act as a mediator between a broken people and a holy God. It was the priest's job to make sacrifices. All of those pointed to Jesus coming as the ultimate sacrifice in the New Testament. But these priests are responsible for reconciliation. Their job was to instruct the people in terms of forgiveness and peace and harmony. You can imagine that often the priest would be the one dealing with broken, vulnerable, mixed up people metaphorically putting his arm around them, encouraging them. The priest would be the one who would be dealing with those who need care and compassion in the midst of their brokenness. 
Now, if a king did that all the time, a nation couldn't function, could it? Oh, come on, let me put my arm around you. It's a king's job to rule and lead and reign. But if a king doesn't have a priestly function where vulnerable people are cared for in the context of that nation, that would be a lopsided nation. What about prophets? Prophets are interested in truth, of course. Their job was not to be popular, particularly. Often they weren't. But to speak incisively and with clarity and to direct people to truths about themselves and God and to enable them to love and to know God's ways and God's character. Sometimes that involved warning. Sometimes that involved encouragement. But their primary job was to lead people into truth and to prevent people getting mixed up and sidetracked into all sorts of wrong ideas and wrong behaviours. Isn't it interesting that in the Old Testament there's a nation there that has a blend of attributes built into its civic leadership that speak to us about the different facets of leadership. Kings need to govern and lead strongly but without the influence of prophets they might begin to despise truth and become corrupt and abusive. And without priests maybe they would trample all over the weak and the vulnerable. Priests do need to care. But without kings to shape that care, they would be so focused on people's problems that they would lose sight of their direction and purpose and never get anything done. And without prophets, there's a danger that priests would forget the truths and just become people-centred Social workers, subjective and not leading people out of themselves into truth that will liberate them. Prophets also, they need to speak truth, but if they don't have, if they don't have kings, how will what they say be implemented? They bring real change. And if there are no priests there, the danger for prophets is that they become cold and harsh and dictating, and forget that people need love as well as truth. And they become mathematical, dogmatic. How hard it is for one man to fulfill all three of those functions. You think about the leaders you know, the pastors you know, the ministers you've known, what often happens in churches is the, the man who seems the most caring is the one who's appointed to lead. Oh, Christianity is all about love. But if you appoint the man who loves the most, there's a danger that he will, he, he will love people and people will respect him for that. But there may not be a sense of purpose, direction, strategy, vision. But if you, if you appoint a man who is a kingly leader, who loves to get things done, there's a danger of be like a bull in a china shop and people will very quickly become disillusioned. If you appoint a man who is only a prophet, he can speak the truth but he never engages with people, he doesn't put his arm on people and he becomes harsh and cold. Well, you can see that it's, it's very hard for one man to have all those things. I think generally speaking... Some men maybe do, but generally speaking, I think men are strong in one of these areas and maybe weak in the other two. What's needed in a church leadership team, though, is a blend of all of those attributes. Maybe sometimes in churches people get frustrated with their minister because they don't understand that. Oh, I wish he was like this. And they don't understand the man's personality and that he leans in a particular way and needs help to focus on some of the other areas. There are very significant angles then to leadership biblically. Just Can you think about this with me as well? As human beings, we, we have a range of different responses, don't we? I, I think a helpful way to think about human life is that we have, in our makeup, minds to think. 
hearts to fail things and wills that choose things we're made up of minds and hearts and wills isn't it significant that those three civic functions speak to each of those responses we need people who will teach us truth that we can think about we need leaders who will tell us what to do so that we'll use our wills and be obedient and do we not need a priestly function that will encourage us and inspire us to feel things we're, we're not one dimensional as people we, we, we have minds to think hearts to feel and wills to choose and we need leaders who understand that and who, who can treat people holistically in, in all those ways you still with me Okay, let me talk about authority structures. It's just a single slide there. When a church draws up its organisational diagram, ours has been a bit sparse up to now. We've got another person tied on to it soon with Richard coming, but one of the things that churches often forget to do is put Jesus at the top. Can I say that? Jesus is the head of his church. He's the CEO, not me, not Richard, and not anyone else. This is his church. He is the Lord, and ultimate authority resides in him. Actually, isn't it interesting that Jesus fulfills all of the Old Testament civic functions? He is a king, and a prophet, and a priest. He's more than a priest. He doesn't just make sacrifice. He gave himself as the sacrifice. Is he not the one who is decisive and commanding as Lord uniquely? Is he not the one who is uniquely incisive and truthful as a prophet who guides us into truth? Is he not uniquely compassionate and tender as a priest? It's incredible, isn't it, that there is one man who beautifully harmonizes all of those functions. He is the ultimate authority, but that doesn't mean he's a bully, because he loves people and died to save them. He is the truth, but that doesn't mean he's harsh and cold. Jesus and his wisdom has ordained that a church should be a place where all of those attributes that blend in his character are demonstrated and reflected what a what a fantastic thing that is to demonstrate to a watching world that is confused about authority structures sin is really rebellion and it always breaks God's design leaders who resort to lording it over people and people resort to going their own way Jesus appoints those who carry his work and those who do have an awesome responsibility to do it as his stewards with his strength and with his help in the way that he does it. And I think we can see some of the work of the Holy Spirit here too. Is the Holy Spirit not the one who was given after Jesus ascended to heaven who guides us into all truth and who encourages and reassures his people correcting and challenging and rebuking and encouraging the, the Holy Spirit reflects the work of Jesus in the hearts and in the minds and in the wills of his people well there's a lot in that isn't there wonder what kind of leader you've got <laughs> is he kingly is he priestly or is he prophetic? Well, hopefully we're trying to kind of harness all of that and how hard it is. Do you pray for your leaders? you pray for me? What an awesome job to be a leader in God's church. One day, let me tell you, I'll stand before Jesus and he'll say, Ian, you give an account of how you led that little flock in Rotherham. What an awesome thing that is. 
this is not about my ego and me being a kind of, you know, big fella. One day I've got to stand before Jesus. He's the CEO. Paul actually says that to Titus. Did you notice that? He says in verse 7, Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, the leaders of God's church are really his under-shepherds. They're not the boss. They're the kind of middle managers. Jesus is the CEO. And leaders in his church should reflect him. Well, let's um, move on to think about character for the rest of our time. There's an overview of leadership, and that's a powerful one, I think. Leadership here, Paul speaks about character. He urges Titus to straighten things out and to complete what's been started and to appoint leaders. The big task is to make sure that there are strong, capable, competent leaders. And Paul encourages Titus to look for particular kinds of men. And I want you to see, first of all, that there's nothing in this list about race. There's nothing here about intelligence or wealth or class. This list and others like it, 1 Timothy 3, are all to do with character. What Paul is interested in is men who display good and wholesome character. It's not meant to be an exhaustive list. The one in 1 Timothy 3 overlaps with this one, but there are differences. What he's trying to do is give an overview and give a sense of the kind of man who should lead in Jesus' church. And he begins with the word blameless. An elder must be blameless. Can I say that that does not mean, that it doesn't imply sinless perfection. There is no leader who is perfect. So, we'll get that straight at the beginning. But what Paul is encouraging Titus to look for here is men who are above reproach. Men who have no obvious character defect or flaw. It isn't that they're perfect, but there's a sense in which, you know, I don't know what the phrase, you know, sometimes we talk about mud sticking, don't we? There's a little sneaky suspicion that something's not quite right. A man who is an elder in the church of Jesus should be above reproach, blameless. And then he proceeds to flesh out what that means. He does it in two ways. Uh, Firstly, Paul urges Titus to look for evidence in a man's private life. And then he urges them to look for evidence in his behaviour and character. And we're going to spend the rest of our time thinking about that. So let's have a little think first about this idea of a man's private life. And let let, let me say this as well. When when people are being considered to be an elder or a leader in a local church, and it it goes like this, you know, he seems quite caring, he can preach a bit, you know, he'll make a good elder. But that's not what Paul says to Titus. He doesn't say, you know, look for the man who is quite nice and loving and can preach a bit. He says to him, I want you to check out his private life. Check out his private life. If he's not showing good leadership traits in his private life, how on earth is he going to manage a church? This is, this is a serious business. And, you know, some of you know that I've been doing this with Richard. I wonder sometimes why I've scared the living daylight sort of him. But um, as, a, as a young man, you know, he, Richard, he's not the finished article any more than I am. But I've been looking for signs and evidence in his private life and in his character that he has the potential, the ability to lead as an elder, a leader in God's church. Well, that's the first place Paul goes. He, he goes, first of all, to a man's family life. How is this man as a husband and as a father? Because if he doesn't get that right, it's unlikely he's going to get leadership in a church right. 
So I want, let me just pause with you and just think this through. I want, first of all, I want you to say that this doesn't mean that all leaders should be married. It can't mean that because Paul wasn't married. <laughs> so Paul isn't saying, when, it, when he says an elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, that is not intended to disqualify unmarried men from leadership. What I want you to understand is the issue is evidence. And mo most men, I suppose, will possibly be married or have a family or both. So Paul very obviously goes to the main thing. If a man isn't married, the point is that you should be looking for evidence from somewhere else. What's he like in his job, for example? Has he, has he done a secular job? What do his colleagues say about him? Does he manage people well if, if he's in management? The, the point that Paul's making is that there should be a looking at evidence in his private life that there's leadership traits there. For most men, that will involve his marriage and his family. But that doesn't exclude unmarried people. Let me just um, say this in passing as well. People will ask, and I, I know some of you have been talking to me about this privately, why does Paul only talk about men here leading? I, I think that's a big subject, and it's not really our main topic for today. We could spend all of our time talking about that. But I, I do want to just say this in passing about the subject of male leadership. Paul here is talking about qualities that are a continuation of the themes that he speaks about elsewhere in relation to the home and to marriage and, and to parenting in a way. There is a pattern in terms of leadership responsibility that begins with God and is primarily entrusted to man. Men, biblically, should man up and step up to the plate and take responsibility for their wives, for their homes, for their kids. That does not imply that men are superior to women and that women are inferior. It doesn't imply somehow that women should be like mice. Don't, don't listen to the cultural anti-caricatures of that principle. We're talking here about healthy, loving, servant-hearted authority that reflects the character of Jesus. And there's a danger that men will either abdicate their responsibility and disappear altogether like cowards, or they'll overcompensate for that and become abusive and chauvinistic and controlling and selfish. And neither of those extremes are biblical. When I talk about men stepping up and taking responsibility, I don't, I'm not talking about men becoming bullies. I'm talking about men doing what men should do which is to take responsibility. I think if men did that more, actually women would have better lives. One of the, the, the biggest issues that women face is, is men abdicating or abusing. And if men were men, I think women's lives would be far happier and healthier. The point I want to make here is that it would be very strange if Paul was saying... Men are responsible for leading in their homes. And then he said, women should lead in church. What, my point is that there's a continuation of a theme here of male headship. And what happens in the home, is that theme is continued extending in the church. And it is men who ought to lead. That doesn't exclude women from being involved in leadership, but it is men who should be responsible in terms of eldership and I think in terms of preaching and teaching. Paul talks about that elsewhere. So in terms of biblical authority structures, this idea of men being elders is an extension of what Paul is already saying and the Bible teaches about authority structures in the home. That's a big subject, I know, but I wanted to say that in passing. It would be bizarre for a man to be the head of his home and then to sit under his wife in authority in a church. I think that's the, the kind of point that I'm making. And, and there are biblical reasons for that, which we're not going to go into today. Paul says also, thirdly, that the man should be married to one wife. I mean, that's not an issue in our monogamous culture here in the West. But in some cultures where polygamy is um, prevalent, 
that's a very interesting biblical statement um, we've seen that it doesn't imply that unmarried men should be excluded from leadership but neither does it forbid remarriage and again the, the whole subject of divorce and remarriage is a complex one and that's not our subject today but if a marriage is ended for example in death where the wife dies there is nothing to stop a man who then remarries uh, be, being a leader in a church this, when it says the husband of one wife it doesn't imply that if his first wife dies to have another one he somehow had two wives and he can't be a leader you, you, I just want to make that technically clear what is Paul talking about here then what he's talking about is faithfulness isn't he faithfulness to one woman one of the ways to establish a man's character is to see how he behaves towards his wife is he faithful is his wife precious to him does he lead his home well is he responsible if he isn't getting that right he shouldn't be an elder in a church and there are things maybe for him to work on and uh, we need to help one another with those things what about parenting <laughs> it's quite a difficult verse here an elder must be blameless, husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and di disobedient. That disqualifies me then. If, uh, if you've met our youngest uh, son, who can be wild and disobedient, so should I resign my position? <laughs> what is Paul driving at here? I think the NIV translation is unfortunate. I think, I think it, gives the it gives the implication here that you can't be an elder unless your children are Christians. I don't think that's what it really means. I don't think the NIV is, is a good translation there. I, I think the sense of this is that children will be respectful and faithful and they'll be well taught in the home. And that, I think it's just adding to that idea of a man being responsible for his family. If his kids are unruly, if his kids obviously don't respect him, then that's going to be something that needs to be looked at. The point is not their faith, but his handling of them. And I think there's uh, perhaps two things we can say about this. This is a massive subject. I, I want to say as well publicly, for th th these issues are big deals you know, in our culture and in church. And I want to encourage us as a church, and maybe this will happen more as, as we uh, appoint Richard. I'm, I'm so delighted that Richard and Henry are getting married in July. And the, the whole issue of marriage and parenting, the, these are intensely practical subjects. And I, I, one of the things that I'd like to talk about on our way day is whether we should provide some leadership in some of these areas. It would be great to have some parenting classes uh, and even some marriage um, not just marriage preparation classes for people being married, but it's good to look at the whole subject of marriage. Uh, so that's something we can think about. But here in terms of parenting, I think there is John Benton in his commentary on Titus, very helpfully talks about two extremes. A man can fall into a trap of either neglecting his children or indulging them. And they are two extremes that a man needs to show that he is successfully avoiding if he's going to be a leader in a church. So first of all, neglect. Does this man love his children enough to be involved in their lives or is he absent emotionally? And this is a big challenge for leaders. Sometimes leaders are very busy. It's one of the cases of our modern age, busyness, isn't it? Men can be capable and competent and very preoccupied with tasks and objectives and targets and projects, men can be guilty of finding their whole identity bound up in their career, their job, their functioning life. But it's important that a man has time for his kids, isn't it? What does it say about a man if he's so busy that he somehow neglects to be involved in his kids life 
What will that say about his leadership of the church? He's going to be the kind of man who'll be busy, 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 but never involved in people's lives. I'm talking here about a man's motive. Listen, I, I know what it is to be busy. Five kids running a business, trying to lead in a church. I know what business feels like. But I'm talking here about a man's motive. If a man's motive is mixed up and he's looking for his security in the wrong place, he will neglect his children with the excuse that he's too busy and he needs to stop what he's doing and examine where his heart is. That's not a reflection of God's character. But the other side of it is that he, he doesn't neglect his children, but he just indulges them. If one extreme is the failure to be loving, the other is the failure to be strong, isn't it? He just gives his kids everything they want. They rule the roost. This is a massive issue culturally. Sometimes for a married couple, you know, there's tension there and it's like the kids become, it's all about the kids, whatever the kids want. And um, let's just kind of look after the kids and it's like a, that's almost the case in our modern age. That It's almost like our God is our family. Everything the kids say, let's just kind of, do, we don't want to upset the kids or grow up dysfunctional. One of the things that will cause kids to grow up dysfunctional is if they don't have strong, loving discipline in the home. Is this man able to exert discipline when it's needed? Does he just seem to turn a blind eye when his children misbehave? Do his children respect him? Do they know the difference between right and wrong? And, I'm, and I'm, again, I'm not talking here about being harsh, authoritarian, disciplinarian. Some men are stupid and abuse their kids in the name of being manly. That isn't Christ-like. I'm talking here about men who are unable to say no to their kids. Oh, they won't love me, man. That's weak. Unable to be consistent in terms of discipline. You can see how relevant that is to church leadership. A man can neglect, but he can also indulge. What will it mean for a man leading a church if he's so nice that he can never say anything hard? <laughs> what will it mean if a man is so loving that he can never say no? What will that mean for a church? A man can be too nice or too harsh. What is he like in his family? What is he like in his work? His life needs to reflect a balance between those two extremes. While Paul isn't here aiming at perfection, he's looking for men who can handle life. He's seeking men who know what to do when the wheel falls off. He's looking for men you have a safe pair of hands. He's looking for men who can cope with responsibility. Let's uh, quickly skip through some of these character traits. We've spent a long time on that. It's very, very important. Paul gives a list here of personal character traits. And some of them he states negatively and some of them he states positively. So let's rattle through these and uh, you've got your finger in the page there. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They're the negatives. And I want to uh, just categorise them in, in sort of three ways. A leader will not be, first of all, annoying and arrogant. The word overbearing... It really means somewhat a man who is self-centred, self-willed and self-pleasing. This is the common trait that men have of not being able to listen. And all men have it to some degree, including me. Overbearing. You just can't listen. John Benton tells a great story. There's a light aircraft with a pilot, two teenage boys and an older Christian on the plane. And then the intercom comes on, the pilot announces, we have a problem, the plane is going to crash, but there's only three parachutes. I'm taking the first one, see ya. And he ejects. 
So there's three people, two teenagers and this older Christian man still on the plane. And one teenager says, I am one of the brightest young people in this modern world. I have an IQ of 175. The world needs me. I may be the one who will uh, invent a cure for AIDS or cancer. I'm going to take a parachute. Goodbye. There's an old man who's a Christian and another teenager left. And the Christian man starts to say, listen, you're a youngster, I'm a Christian, I know I'm going to heaven. You you take the parachute. And the other teenage boy says, don't worry, there's still two. The brightest boy in the world just jumped out with my rucksack. (laughs) (laughs) I thought I was good. That's the kind of attitude that leaders shouldn't cultivate, isn't it? Arrogance. Annoying arrogance. Teachers need to be teachable. They need to allow for the fact that sometimes they get things wrong. They need to cultivate humility. And an overbearing man, I'll tell you this, an overbearing man in a church will dominate things to such an extent that he obscures Christ. We need to be quick. Aggressive men with short fuses do not make good leaders. Men who are oversensitive, given to insulting people who criticise them. Men who have anger management issues. Argumentative. Some men like to express themselves with their fists. There's no place in church leadership for men like that. It doesn't work at home and it will never work in a church. What about another A? Addicted. There are a couple of allusions to addictive behaviour here. Paul talks about drunkenness. For some men that's an issue, but there are plenty of other things men can be addicted to, you know. A Christian leader ought not to be a man who is easily bribed. I I wouldn't say that pastors generally are in it for the money, but this whole issue of money can cause tension. The issue is that a leader should not be addicted. He should be free from the love of money. He should be impartial. He shouldn't be addicted to popularity. Some men never really grow up, do they? Some men are like children who make a Lego model and say, Dad, Dad, look at how clever I am. Look at what I made. We grow up and become more sophisticated, but we never lose the sense of wanting other people to compliment us all the time. Look at me. Please like me. Please love me. When a leader is addicted... To the drug of seeking approval, he has fallen into a great trap. And when a man is fearful of being unpopular, how it will affect his judgment. Is there a pattern in this man's life of being enslaved? Very quickly, what will a leader be? We'll just write through three other things. First of all, he will be hospitable. And I don't just mean he's got an open home. He'll have a hope and an open heart. A hospitable leader is open-handed and generous. He won't be a recluse or a hermit. He won't be the kind of man who's a strong, silent type, who works hard but never looks people in the eye. He'll be approachable and open, hospitable. In the Old Testament, the idea of hospitality was connected to the idea of being kind to strangers welcoming and providing for people who are needy and vulnerable. A good leader will be someone who has his eyes open for visitors, strangers, outsiders who might come in. He's not racist or prejudiced or class-driven. He's hospitable. Secondly, he'll be healthy. Paul says to Titus, he will love what is good. There's a simplicity about him. He's not rash. He's not prone to being wild and foolish. He is a man who has settled down. He's balanced. There's a maturity about him. His appetites are under control. His taste is clean and wholesome. He doesn't tell dirty jokes. He's not the kind of chap who revels in things that are not nice. He's wholesome and healthy. And last of all, he's honest. We're rattling through. The last clause is a kind of three-way idea. He's self-controlled in the sense that he's upright, holy and disciplined. What that means is a Christian leader will be fair in his dealings with people. 
He'll be holy in his relationship with God and he's in control in his relationship with himself. He's honest. Well, we're done. When I was making notes this week, I made all my notes and I wanted to write across them with a big marker pen. Marker pen? Marker pen. The word love. Christian ministry is not authoritarianism. It is Christ-like. Good leaders will be loving, but they won't say yes to everything. A good leader knows and has the wisdom to know when to challenge and when to encourage, when to be tough and when to be tolerant. Who on earth is equal to all of that? What a high and lofty vision of leadership that is. But I'm talking about Jesus. He is the ultimate authority, strong and tender, clear and incisive, involved and responsible, diligent and reliable. Do you long for someone to love you who is big enough to understand you and cares enough to be involved in all of your and my messiness? Ultimately, he laid down his life, not for good people, for sinners, because that is his heart. He is a great king who has a heart that is filled with compassion for people like you and me. Can I say to you this morning, your spiritual life will blossom and flourish, not by shaking your fist and going your own way, but by bowing your heart to him. Trusting his love, treasuring his truth, obeying his commands and building your whole life and confidence around his leadership of you. Our culture is very disorientated. The church is very dysfunctional. May our church be a place where we strike a healthy biblical balance and demonstrate what loving authority and respectful submission really ought to look like. Amen. Oh,